So we are in week four through our series in Philippians that's titled Life Poured Out. And um, so today we're going to pick it up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. We're going to actually move up just a little bit, um, be just for sake of context, all right? And um, the title for today's message is, It's Good for You. It's Good for You. So, if you have your Bibles, how many of you brought your Bibles with you? Good. I don't know what version you're reading out of, but I'll be reading out of the ESV, so your version might sound a little different. And I'm actually going to move back up to verse, uh, I believe, verse 18, all right? So, Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, read with me. No, read to yourself, and I'll read, okay? Read with me now. What then, Paul writes, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Let me stop right there. This word deliverance is really key here, and I want you to, to keep this in mind, because this word deliverance in the Greek is where we get our word salvation, all right? And it's important that we understand this because salvation, the the salvation that Paul is talking about here is a present tense salvation. It is the act of being saved, okay? And so when Paul says, for my deliverance here, he's not questioning his, his, um, his position, if you will, in the kingdom. When he embraced Jesus Christ, and when we embrace Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is our salvation. And at that point, we stand justified in the righteousness of Christ. Okay? But Paul is talking about here is a present tense, ongoing, being saved, being transformed salvation. Okay? Deliverance is what he's talking about. Deliverance, salvation. You with me? Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. All five of you. All right. I don't want to lose you along the way. Okay. So, verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full charge, but that with full charge, excuse me, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For for me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for the progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation that is from God. It is for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Interesting story that Paul writes here in this letter. When I think about this, I think about, I, I love the fact that, that, um, that there are movies and writers and, and, and um, people throughout the course of history that have experienced incredible partnerships. And I, I think I told you last week or the week before that I really enjoy good movies, you know, especially westerns. I love, I love good westerns. My favorite western is Tombstone. I know y'all pray for the pastor. Right. My favorite western is Tombstone, and here's why. Because in Tombstone, it's, it's a classic movie about partnership, two men. I love movies that have two characters, you know, two main characters, where in the movie, you know, these guys, they're the good guys, you know, they're defending the town or whatever the case may be, and the bad guys are descending on them, and it's about to get cracking, right? It's about to be on, right? That's what happened in Tombstone. You know, you've got, uh, you're getting ready to have the shootout at the OK Corral. Wyatt Earp is sitting there, he's meeting with his brothers, Virgil and Morgan, and he's upset. He's like, man, I can't believe you got me into this. I mean, they're about to go down to the OK Corral and shoot it out. Doc Holliday comes meandering in. Now, Doc is the man in this movie, right? He's the gunslinger. He comes meandering in. And Wyatt's giving it to his brothers. He turns to Doc and he says, Doc, this is not your fight. You can leave. If you know what's good for you, you'd probably leave right now. I love Doc Holliday's response to his longtime friend and partner. He looks at him and he says, I'm cleaning up for Sunday morning. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? Leave, leave you in the, in the midst of a fray? It is good for me to be here. I'm the guy that's the gunslinger, and I am not going to leave you right in the heart of conflict. Hmm. I'm going to stay here with you. I'm going to be here for you. In a lot of ways, this really is the same attitude that characterizes Paul's life in this passage today. Paul lived his life for the benefit of others. Paul paid attention to the needs of others and was quick to meet those needs. He, he knew that those who were under his guidance and his, his, his spiritual supervision would grow spiritually as long as he was around. And so he may have wanted to be with Jesus. He may have wanted to depart, knowing that, hey, you know, it's full well better for me to, to leave for me 
but he knew that his work wasn't done. He knew that they, there was still some unfinished business. And he knew that it was best for him to remain in place because the church in Philippi needed him. Key said it best last week, which, by the way, Key, great job with handling that text last week, man. It was really, really good. Yeah, yeah, my son in the gospel, that's right. Key said, Key said Paul's passion was life in Christ. Paul was passionate about living out the life of Christ, living out a life poured out on the behalf or on the sake of others. This was Paul's life. As a matter of fact, in verse 21, Paul gives us a definition of life, his definition of life. He says, I'm going to give you my definition of life, and then I'm going to invite you to imitate my life. And this is what he says. He says, for me, for me to live is Christ. If I'm going to be around here, my life is going to be totally dedicated to Jesus Christ. For me to live is Christ. But I also recognize when I get up out of here, to die is gain. He said it another way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. In other words, I have to live. I have to walk around the flesh. You know, just I, in order for me to be legal in this earth realm, I got to have an earth suit. He says, yet not I. I'm walking around, but I am totally surrendered because it's Christ that lives in me. Then he says this, and the life that I now live, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so now this is the life that you've seen me live out. And so this is the life that I'm inviting you into as well. That's the text. That's the context here. So now let's, let's start plowing some new ground here. This passage today can really be broken up into two parts, all right? Part one is filled with expectation, and part two is filled with exhortation, okay? So now part one, expectation. In verses 22 through 24, Paul describes this, this dilemma that he's in, and he has a resolution to this dilemma. You see, in these two verses, Paul emphasizes this conviction that he has to remain with the church. It's good for me to remain here. And so he's hopeful that the outcome of his trial that he's about to, to go through in Rome would lead him to being freed to live his life and not be sentenced to death. He wanted to go back. And so he was hopeful for that, that kind of outcome for several reasons. I want to go back. But it's more than just about you. It's also about me too. See, Paul knew that for him to stay here would also mean his own spiritual growth. That it'd be good for him. And he believed that as long as he was here, that he would be able to bear fruit of righteousness for Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way in verse in 12, 12 and 13, earlier up in this passage. He says, 
He says, listen, he says, what's happened to me as I live my life, what's happened to me has been incredible. That term happened to me in, in, in the Greek really means the things that are dominating me at this point. He says, the things that I'm going through right now, the trials of life, the tribulations that I'm going through, my persecution, my imprisonment, it's serving a purpose. It's happening for a reason. And again, Key nailed this last week when he said Paul endured prison. And his stay there was almost unbearable. The things that he had to endure there. But then look at what he says. He says, the things that I've endured, it's for my deliverance. It's for my salvation. It's for my growth. Nothing happens by chance in the life of the follower. Nothing. Everybody say nothing. No thing happens by chance in the life of the follower. If something happens in your life, it's either as a directive from God or it's in his permissive will. But nothing ever happens to us by chance as followers of Christ. Nothing. So Paul is here, and he's telling us, he says, listen, my hardship here has served to shape my faith. Everything that I've gone through has served to shape my faith. So now let me ask you, what hardships are you facing? Where is God trying to get your attention? What is he using that perhaps you, you may have considered was a distraction, but really what he's doing is he's honing and shaping your faith right now? Hmm. So growing faith, that's the first expectation. The second expectation we see is growth and advancement of the gospel. For two years of Paul's imprisonment, he was chained to one of the Praetorian guards. He had, he had a chain on his wrist everywhere that he went, and he was chained to a guard. One guy gets off shift, click, click, 24-7, 365 for two years. No privacy to do even the intimate things that needed to be done. No privacy at all. I kind of find that humorous when I think about it. Because here's Paul. Watch this now. The greatest evangelist this world has ever known. And he's chained to a Praetorian prison guard 24-7, 365. Watch what happens. Think about it. Different soldiers come to serve. One goes off shift. The other goes off shift. Click. They exchange handcuffs. Then what happens is, is they take turns hearing and, and hearing Paul and his conversations that he'd be having with other inmates and visitors. They'd often engage him in personal conversations. Then they'd hear him pray and sing songs, even in the difficult times. 
They'd watch him and listen to him dictate letters to the churches that were scattered in, in the diaspora. The gospel of Christ, because of Paul's imprisonment, spread throughout the barracks. <laughs> None of these stories would have been possible if not Paul, if not for Paul being chained in those prisons. So, the first expectation is growth. The second expectation is advancement of the gospel. The third is for joy. The specific statement here in verse 26 is, is this, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. This is a reference to Paul's presence with them when he returns, bringing them great joy. That's what the word glory here is. The word glory here in the Greek can be translated to either joy or pride. The idea here is, is Paul can envision himself and is, and is it's trying to, to get them to envision a time where he'll be standing there in their presence as a freed man. And man, what a cause for joy and celebration. That's the picture. You get it? And in this joy, there are three expressions that Paul wants us to see. As he wrote to the church, he said, I want you to understand that the first expression of joy is joy that's only found in Christ Jesus. See, Paul knew that the basis of all joy laying was, was, was in relationship with Jesus Christ. He knew that, and he instructed the church in Philippi the same thing. And then joy that they experienced as, as Paul brought the gospel to them, to them for the first time as a representative of the gospel. And then the joy that they would have as they would eagerly unite with him, reunite with him again. So, joy. It appears in this passage that, that Paul really had an expectation that after this trial was over in Rome, that he would return to the church in Philippi for a joyous reunion. He had that expectation. But then in verse 27, the tone shifts. And it goes from expectation to exhortation. Okay? So first, Paul... Paul tells them of, the, of his expectation to see them again and to be with them again and to experience growth and development in his own life. And then he says, listen, now I want to exhort you to something. I want to exhort you to three things. And the first is that every single person that calls themselves a Christ follower would model Christ-like character. He says, listen, whatever, whatever happens to me, no matter what happens, whether I'm here with you or whether I, I never see you again, I want you to live a different kind of life than the world around you. Look what he says in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here's what Paul is saying. He says, I want to know, church, that you're conducting your life in a different way. That your life doesn't mirror what's going on in the world. That you're living your life by a different standard. The verb for manner here in this passage really does speak to life, the way we live our lives or our conduct. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's found in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, when when Paul as a Roman citizen is brought before the Roman council. And he's standing there for examination. And as he stands before the council, he makes this statement. He says, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Hmm. Now, don't miss this. Because normally what Paul does when he talks about conduct, he talks about our walk, right? But this time he uses a verb that implies conduct as citizens, a different kind of conduct, as if he's saying, you're citizens of a different country, and you're responsible to live as citizens of that country. I think he's calling the church in Philippi to live differently than the world around them. That's what I think. I also think it speaks to two things as Paul is, is, is charging them, exhorting them. Appropriate ethic, ethical and moral conduct as citizens of Rome. To live a life that is socially and morally right. And then to participate in the society around them. Don't isolate themselves just because they are the church. And then to obligate yourself to let your light shine to make a difference in the community that you're in. And then I think the second thing that Paul is charging them to do is live as citizens of a different country, citizens of heaven. Live a life worth living being called a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Live live as a representative, as a diplomat, if you will, taking this journey knowing that you're just passing through. Live differently. So then he makes this statement. He says, so so I want you to understand that whether I am with you or I'm absent, I want to know that your life is a reflection of Christ's likeness. I want to be able to see that. I I want to hear that good report. Okay? So the second exhortation is unity in the church. He says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in your faith. Then he gives us three explanations, three metaphors. He says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And Paul uses two metaphors here to describe this word word standing or to stand, both of which speak to contending for the faith. The first is a military metaphor. It's It's a metaphor that the Roman citizens and the Roman military would certainly be able to understand and identify with. Standing firm against the struggle. Not giving in, holding your ground, advancing forward, taking new ground. That's the first metaphor. That's the first image. 
The second image he uses is, is, is uh, the image of Greco-Roman athletic games and team sports. So standing firm, side by side, working towards the same common goal. Now, I think if Paul was here today, I think he'd use a different metaphor. I think he'd use the NFL. I mean, because think about it. In the NFL, that's what you have, a team sport. You got big old guys standing side by side, right? Right? Offense against defense, shoulder to shoulder. And you guys know if you've been here for any time, you know, I'm, I'm a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. Yeah, I know it's hard to be a Steeler fan right now. But I am, right? But I also, I love watching good teams. I love watching Peyton Manning on his team. I love the way he commands his team. He's got a great offensive line. Those guys go to the line, Peyton comes up. It's ridiculous how good he is, how well he knows the game. He comes up. I-90, I-90, 155, 155. 52's the mic, 52's the mic. Hurry, 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 hurry. <laughs> He's calling out all these signals, right? And then he just marches his team down according or the, or the field. He just eats you alive because he's good at what he does. But listen, he's just one guy. He's just one player on a team. And I, I watched this. I, I couldn't wait to see it happen because, you know, I think the pretty boy quarterbacks need to get knocked in the dirt every now and then, you know. And so I'm, I'm, I'm watching them play the Oakland Raiders the other night, and Peyton drops back, and his left tackle doesn't do his job. He's getting ready to throw the ball, and the, and the, the defensive end from the Raiders plows into Peyton and just pow drives him into the ground. <laughs> I love it. And here's the point. One person doesn't win the game. It's team. It doesn't matter how good he is. If he doesn't have a line to protect him, he's no good. But every player side by side working together, that's what makes the difference. This metaphor that's used here is only used one other time in Scripture, and that's in Philippians 4, verse 3, where Paul instructs the church to labor side by side with each other. Labor side by side with each other. Be with each other. Standing in one spirit, one mind. Everything connected, mind, will, imagination, intellect, everything Together, one attitude, one common goal in a unity that is supposed to characterize what the church is supposed to look like. That's the point here. And then he says this. In verse 28, he says, I don't want you to be frightened by anything. A word frightened here is also another metaphor. It, it, it speaks to a horse that's really skittish, you know. I don't know if you've ever seen a skittish animal, but 
you got to be careful of them, you know, especially horses. They're big animals. And I see videotapes of, of guys that are horse whispers, and they try to get up to a horse that's, that's really skittish, and that thing's jumping all around, and eyes are bucking all out, right? It's frightened. It's afraid. Paul is telling them, listen, don't be skittish. Don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated by your adversaries, no matter what they throw at you. Because the greater one lives on the inside of you. And there's a reason why they're standing against you. Because you're standing for something that's right. And whenever you stand up for something that's right, listen to me, family, you will face opposition. It's going to happen. And so, so Paul writes, he says, the fact that you're receiving this opposition is a proof text, is a proof of your alignment with me and their alignment with the enemy. And I want you to know that no opposition, no matter how formidable it may appear, can prevail against the truth of the gospel, can prevail against the work of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, they that oppose you, oppose you to their own destruction. At some point, they'll find themselves in a state of ruin. That's what Paul is writing there. And then he says this, as a, as a further way of encouragement, he says, this also is an indication of the ongoing work of salvation that's taken place in your life the transformation that's occurring in your life as God uses you and shapes you through hardships and trials, and he uses those things to draw you closer to himself. Benefit. And then the third exhortation here is a call to die. Look at verse 29. It says, For has it been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. That word granted there is really interesting when you think about conflict. Why would you want to be given the gift of conflict? Right? But Paul says, this conflict has been granted to you. It's a gift. It's a privilege. Listen, you and I get to be partakers of the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. That's what Paul is saying here. It's a privilege. And then he says this, but to be a partaker, you've got to die. You've got to die. Paul goes on to write in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I want to get to know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. To be a follower of Jesus Christ, we must imitate what Christ has already done, how he lived his life, how he sacrificed everything for us. In much the same way, God is telling us that to the way of surrenderance is through dying to ourselves. To be like Jesus, we have to think like Jesus. We have to act like Jesus. 
That means taking on the mind of Christ. Sacrificing ourselves. Dying to ourselves. You have to die to live. Lest a seed falls in the ground and dies, it will not bring forth fruit. We have to die to ourselves. And Jose, you can bring your team up. We have to die to ourselves if we expect and want to live a Christ-like life that will glorify him. That's what God wants for us. That's why Jesus came and died and rose again. That's God's plan for us. And it's a good plan. It's a plan that's good for us. It's the life that Jesus invites us into. Why don't you stand with me?